0: Awesome. Awesome. I can tell you, anybody who uh, who can't preach coming out of something like that is, you know, okay, whatever. Totally excited to uh, share with you this whole idea of God is the only one who can. And so your, our hearts are stirred up by that. And hopefully in the next few moments, our, our mind and our hearts can engage with this idea that, that we are talking about, gathering about, and thinking about a God who can. So we're going to lean into that today. If you're New with us, so glad that you're here. My name is Alan, and glad that you're with us. If you're with us online, once again, so thrilled that you're here, uh, that you're uh, checked in with us. We're finishing this series called What's in a Name? And what we're doing is we're looking at the names of Jesus found in the New Testament. Jesus was given the name at birth. He was given the name Jesus. But he also had other special names that were given to him in the New Testament as people celebrated him and talked about him Etc. What we're doing in this series is looking at some of the key names of Jesus that have deep roots in the New Testament. And it's so helpful for us to look at those roots so we can understand it better. I have uh, given myself, so it was a self proclaimed nickname, of El Huapo. And <laughs> If you don't know what that means, then it would be easy, you know, for you to just say, I don't know, it doesn't connect with you at all. But if you know that El Huapo means the handsome one, then you're probably thinking, well, of course, that totally makes sense. And so so the whole idea is that we we have to know what what a name means for us to be able to connect with it. We have to know what's in these names so that we can learn that much more about Jesus. And that's why we're here. Just make no mistake about it. That's that's why this church exists. That's why we gather here. That's why we try to figure things out. That's why we do whatever. We gather here so that we can learn more about Jesus, so that we can become more like him, so that we can draw closer to him. That's what it's all about. And so we want to take a step in that direction today as we look at another one of these names of Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for your story. I thank you for your name. We celebrate the name of Jesus today embrace the fact that you're the only one who can. And we want to look at, at one of your, the names given to you so that we can get just a little bit more depth into who you are, just one step closer. God, wherever we are in our journey, whether we're a follower or we're trying to figure this out, God, that we would take one step closer to Jesus today, we pray in his name. Amen. The name that we're looking at this morning is a name that was really important to Matthew, the tax collector. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples that, who followed Jesus, and he's the writer of the first book in the New Testament. And it was a big deal for Matthew to refer to Jesus as the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. Now that language, the whole using the phrase son of as part of someone's name is not the way we use names nowadays. It's just not how we talk. It's, I mean, we don't say son of. We might say son of a whatever, but we don't say in terms of someone's name. We rarely say that is the son of. Now, if you watch medieval movies uh, from previous centuries, then you're likely familiar with people who would do that. You say, this is Ulrich von Lichtenstein, who's the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so. And uh, we, we, they would do that, because lineage was so important. Ancestry, to know where someone lined up. What was the bloodline of that person? And this has been important throughout human history. Now, you might think that we don't use that anymore, that that's not relevant, that doesn't matter for us uh, anymore. We, We don't use that kind of language, son of, daughter of. We don't use that. But it actually is a part of our culture, more than you might be aware. The third president of the United States was Thomas Jefferson. And what that meant by his name is that there was someone in the lineage of Thomas Jefferson named Jeffer. There was, and so then then someone became the son of Jeffer. And so we wanted to be clear in the lineage, this is the son of Jeffer. So then that became Jeffer's son, Jeffer's son. The same can be said about Lyndon Johnson, John's son, the son of John. In Hollywood, there is a famous actor named Jack, and somewhere in his lineage is a nickel. And so, the son of nickel. Okay, that's a terrible Jack Nicholson impression, but you get where I'm going here. Here at Mountain Park, many of you know Jim and Judy Stolson. Somewhere in their lineage was a thief, and I don't know, that's their story. That's, I don't know, you can ask them, figure that all out. But here at Mountain Park, we have Nelsons, and Andersons, and Wilsons, and Jacksons. We have, these names come from a root that says, son of, son of, son of, son of. This is a very important part of, of, of our journey still today, and it was critical, crucial for them. Jesus is sometimes viewed as having the first name Jesus, last name Christ, Jesus Christ, which is, which is not the case. That's, that's a misunderstanding. Christ is a title. Christ is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. If Jesus did have a last name, however, it could have been Davidson. He could have had a last name, Jesus Davidson, which as a side might explain why there's such a fascination in the United States with Harleys because they are of the line of David somehow. And so that might be, okay, okay. So in the first chapter of the first book in the New Testament, uh, which is written by Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew wants to make sure that the writers understand that the Jesus we're talking about, the Jesus that this, this whole New Testament is all about, he comes from the line of David. He starts off, the whole New Testament starts off with a genealogy to show that Jesus fulfills the prophecies that a Messiah, a Christ, would come and be in this line of David. This was critical. This was so important to the story. A Messiah was going to come, and Jesus is from this line. So let me just jump in to kind of a few sections here in Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob was the father of, was the father of, was the father of, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was the lineage down, verse six, and Jesse was the father of King David. Was the father of, was the father of, was the father of the lineage all the way down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. What we have here in, in Matthew chapter one is the lineage of David from Abraham through David to Joseph, who was Jesus' adopting father. What we find in Luke chapter 3 is another genealogy, a lineage showing that Jesus, mo- Jesus' mother Mary was also from the line of David. So Joseph was from the line of David. Mary was from the line of David. Jesus absolutely was from the line of David. This was critical in this journey. But it, but it makes you want to ask, well, then, so what's, yeah, yeah, Jesus is from the line of David. Jesus is the Messiah. So what's so great about David? What's so special about David? I mean, I mean, if you look at this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, why wasn't Jesus referred to as the son of Zerubbabel or the son of Zadok? That's a cool name. I, I, I could go for that, the son of Zadok. I, I would watch that movie. But but, but what's the deal with Jesus? Why is, there, why is there so much? What's the deal with David? Why is, does Jesus have to be connected with David? Now, if you would not consider yourself a church person, if you are not familiar with the Old Testament, maybe you've never read the Old Testament. You love and believe in Jesus and the Old Testament concerns you, you're nervous about it or whatever it might be. Even if you've read, never read the Old Testament, I'm confident you know something about David. David was referred to as as a man after God's own heart. What happened is that there was a prophet named Samuel who went to David's family. Um, Jesse was the father, and Samuel was told by God that one of Jesse's sons would be the new king of Israel. And Jesse had big strapping sons, and Samuel looked at all the different sons, but God wanted Samuel to choose the youngest, smallest runt of a son, David. And God said, through Samuel, said, people look on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And there was this heart of a lion that was in David. And, and God used David to be the greatest king in Israel's history. David becomes the hotshot kid who, who, who takes out Goliath. David, you know, we have story after story. It's not a smooth path for David, He has to go through difficult times with Saul, just great stories in there, but he becomes the king. He becomes the greatest king in Israel's history. But what I want to look at today is a small story, a lesser known story that helps us understand perhaps to a greater extent why Jesus was celebrated as the son of David, because David is the one through whom God could do the impossible. David is the one that nobody else could do things, just like the Goliath story. There's another story I want to look at today where David is the only one who could do the impossible. Now, to set us up for this story, I want to do a recap of what we have done so far in this series over the past three weeks. We started with Abraham, and Abraham did not have to sacrifice his son, Isaac, and they became a, a large family. And Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations. And this family grew and grew. And this was, he was the father of the nation of Israel. They ended up having to go to Egypt because they ran out of food. It was a famine. So they had to go to Egypt to get food. They stayed there for hundreds of years and grew in strength, grew in numbers. And they became slaves in Egypt. They were used by the leaders to build the cities in Egypt. God then called Moses to save the people from slavery. That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. They crossed the Red Sea and they were wandering in the desert and then God provided for them, provided bread of life for them. That's what Jan talked about last Sunday. And they wandered in the desert for 40 years until they crossed over the Jordan River and entered into the land that was promised to them, the promised land. And they were in this region and they conquered, they conquered it all and, um, and they, they took every city in that region between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. They took all of the cities but one. The one city that they did not take over many, many, many years, the city that they could not take was a city named Jebus, J-E-B-U-S. If you Googled Jebus right now, you will likely find a connection to a Simpsons episode some years ago. It was a Simpsons episode, you might remember, where, where Homer was saying, Save me, Jebus, save me, Jebus. Because I guess in the show's design, they couldn't, they didn't want to say the name Jesus, so they used the name Jebus. And it, it's as funny as it was in that show, uh, it has nothing to do with this story. Not absolutely nothing to do with it. It's simply Homer being the son of a simp. Okay, so. So what we have here is this city named Jebus. David is king. This is years, years, generations after the people of God have entered into the Promised Land, and they have occupation of every city except the city of Jebus. It's a small city. It's only about the size of our property here as a church, about twelve acres. That's it. That's the size of this this city, but it was impenetrable. That's why no one had taken it, and it's why David wanted it. It was impenetrable essentially for two reasons. One is it was up on a mountain, and it had walls all around the city, and up on that mountain, over any of the walls, it could see attackers from any angle. There was no way to sneak up on the city of Jebus, so it could protect itself day and night from any attackers. The second reason that it was impenetrable is that they couldn't—they couldn't even starve them to death to, or to surrender inside the city because they had access to an underground freshwater source where they could access that water, and they could—it was a self-sustaining city, the city of Jebus. So here's the story. It's found in Second Samuel chapter five. 2 Samuel is so Samuel, I said, was the prophet who identified. David as the king, as the, as the new king, one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel is then, is then the story of, of, of Samuel choosing David and the story of J, David's reign as king. 2 Samuel chapter 5, halfway through verse 6 reads, the Jebusites, that's the people of Jebus, the Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here even the blind and the lame can ward you off they thought david cannot get in here they were they were teasing him taunting him almost as if they were on the on the on the wall saying, your mother is a hamster and your father smells of elderberry. They were up on, on, the, on the, the, the walls and just tormenting and ridiculing David saying, even the blind and the lame can hold you up. No problem for us. David was the king and there was one city that eluded him. And he would look up at that city and he would think, wouldn't it be great if we could take that city. He was obsessed with Jebus, but it was impossible. Wouldn't it be great if we could accomplish that, but it was impossible? Can you relate to that in your life? Is there a Jebus in your life? Something that you look at, you think about, you imagine and think that would be incredible. It would be so awesome if that could happen. And I'm not talking about getting a a, a possession, a material possession. I'm talking about something bigger than that. Something that you look at and you say, wouldn't it be awesome if that could happen? But it just seems impossible. Maybe it's freedom from something in your life. Maybe it's freedom from something that has kept you imprisoned for far too long. And it's time for you to break free from that, break free from a particular relationship or some kind of chemical that has a hold on you. Maybe it's healing for you or for someone you love, someone you care about. Physical healing, spiritual healing, and relational healing, emotional healing. Something in your life that you just look at and you say, wouldn't it be great, but it just seems impossible. The story of David is the story of a king who trusted that God could do the impossible, what generations and generations could not do. Here's what happens. Verse 8, on that day, David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies this is such a cool story. Like I said before, they were self-sustaining because there was a river running underneath the city of Jebus. It was the Gion Spring underneath there. And what the Jebusites had done years ago is they brilliantly dug a hole down, created a well so that they could access the fresh water that was flowing underneath the mountain, flowing underneath their city, and they could pull it up and they could take care of themselves. They were self-sustaining. So David was the first one in generations to figure out that if he could access the Gion Spring somewhere upriver and underground, get, get through this river, underground, find the hole underneath Jebus, and then climb up that hole, pop out, and then conquer the city from the inside. This is an incredible story. It's like Mission Impossible. Dun, 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 dun. As he and his men are climbing up and they get out and dun, 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 dun to take everyone. Okay, there's no guns. But it's just, it's just a great story of, of David conquering this thing that could not be conquered. And it's, and it's what happens. He takes the city of Jebus and he renames it. You know what he renames it? Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was the city in the promised land that they could not access until David did the impossible, until God, through David, did the impossible. The city of Jerusalem, the city that David's son Solomon would eventually build the mighty temple on, the city that Centuries later, Jesus would ride in on a donkey and people would say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then within a week, that same Jesus would be sentenced to death in that city and carry a cross in that city to a place where he would eventually be nailed to that cross and die. And it's that same city that has been fought for for 2,000 years since then, back and forth and back and forth. And it remains the center of the, the unrest in the Middle East. I believe Jerusalem is the center of the world. And it was this city that was impossible to penetrate. A city that David looked at and knew that this place, these 12 acres, were a very, very big deal. Verse 9, David took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David, also Jerusalem. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. David was a king who trusted that God could do the impossible. So when it comes to your Jebus whatever in your life that you look at and go, wouldn't that be awesome? But it just seems impossible. Whatever that might be, King David cannot help you. As great as David was, and as amazing as the things were that he accomplished in his time, and the reason we celebrate King David as the greatest king in Israel's history, he can't help you. In the New Testament, there's a, a book called the Book of Acts. And it's really the, the story of what happens after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven. And the Book of Acts are, are the actions of the followers of Jesus who had to tr- figure out how to do this without Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes and meets them in a place called the upper room where they had gathered. And Peter boldly speaks there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. Peter steps up, the one who had denied Jesus, the one who, who had stumbled in many ways. God spoke through Peter and said, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. Some years ago, I got to go to the place where they, where they guess was the actual upper room. And you could look out the window from the upper room where the group had gathered, you could look out the window and you could see the spot where the tomb of David lay. You could, see, you could see the spot where the tomb of David. It's almost like Peter was saying, there's David. He was great, but he's dead. He was great, but he's dead. He can't help you. But he, David, was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. One day, a Messiah would come. A Christ would come. David is dead. His tomb is right there. But one day, Peter said, the prophecies had laid out that one day a Messiah would come and not just conquer one city of Jebus, but a Messiah would come and give power to, to his followers to conquer any and all Jebuses, Jesus is the son of David. He's from the line of David. David was just a sample of the power of God because one day this Jesus was going to come, the son of David, who could provide power to all. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is referred to multiple times as the son of David. And when people cry out to Jesus as the son of David, listen to this, It was because they needed mercy or they needed healing. That's what it meant when they said, Jesus, son of David, they were in desperate need. For example, Matthew chapter 9 is a story of two blind men. Two blind men who could never have seen their loved ones, who could never have worked. All they could could do was beg in order to try to survive. And they say in in Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. In chapter 15, there's a story of a woman who had a demon-possessed daughter. And she had been praying for her daughter every day for her daughter to get freedom. This was something she did not have the power to do. And so she says in Matthew chapter 15, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord... Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Again, in Matthew 20, there's another set of two blind men. And they say, "Two two men were sitting on the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. In the book of Matthew, people who use the name Son of David for Jesus were people who were in desperate need of mercy and healing and power and strength. So when you think about your Jebus, when you think about something in your life that seems impossible, that you do not have the strength for, that years and years and years have proven that you do not have the strength to take care of this. Let me just remind you, David can't help you. He can't help you. He can inspire you. We can look at this story and say, say yes, it's, it's a reminder that, that, that God's power can turn our Jebus into a Jerusalem. It's great. It's an inspiring story. But David can't actually help you. He can inspire you, but he can't help you. Who can help you is the son of David. What can help you is if we come to the realization that Jesus Jesus, who was was born, was given multiple names. One of the names he was given was Son of David, the one who has the power to do the impossible in your life. When people cried out, Jesus, Son of David, it was because they were in need of mercy. They were in need of healing. So, are you ready to call out to Jesus as the Son of David? Are you ready to look at your Jebus, this thing that you desire so, that just seems impossible, but you desire for it to happen, you desire for the freedom to happen, etc. Are you ready to not just see Jesus as peaceful and loving and kind, which he is. Jesus is peaceful and loving and kind. But are you ready to also see Jesus, the son of David, as powerful and mighty, and strong, and capable of doing the impossible. Are you ready to call out to Jesus as the one who can change your Jebus into a Jerusalem? I'm going to pray with you here, and then the band is going to lead us in in a song of celebration of the power of God, and then the prayer team is going to gather up front here and the prayer team and I are going to be available for any of you who specifically want to pray about a Jeebus in your life where we call upon the power of Jesus to, to, to come and do for you what you cannot do on your own. But before we head into that, I want to do a prayer over all of us. Would you all just close your eyes? Father in heaven, I thank you for this name. I thank you for this story. God, I thank you that that the roots of this story is is a is a king that you use to do the impossible and that we can look to your son Jesus as the one who continues to do impossible it's not just some story that we look out back and go wow that must have been amazing it's a story that we get to see right now and say god you are amazing you have the power we don't want to just pretend or hope that you have the power we want to believe Help us in any level of unbelief here today so that we can embrace your son, Jesus, as the son of David, the one who has the power to do the impossible, we pray in his name. Amen.